Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. This is Trevor Shelby doing a special opening for this bonus episode. Uh, this is the um, bonus episode is basically the Silent Night, Deadly Night series, all put into one episode. So intros and outros have been removed, and I've kind of put it all together here. So if you've already listened to it, you don't have to listen to it again. If you want to, that's fantastic. Um, I've, uh, I hope you all are doing fantastic as well. I, uh, I've been doing pretty well. I, uh, just recovering from COVID. So it's been, it's been a rough week. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's been a rough week, but I've gotten a lot done this month for this next year's worth of uh show. Um, I've actually gone through, I spent a lot of time identifying tons of true crime cases that you guys have probably never heard of and, uh, kind of doing some preliminary research on those. And then I've gotten a few good stories written. So it's been, it's been a pretty eventful month, even, even though, I I ended up with the uh, the global bastard. Everything that's going on right now. So, with that being said, I hope you enjoy this bonus episode, and I look forward to having new episodes coming out next month. It's it's gonna be a blast. So, I'm taking you all back to December 24th, Christmas Eve, in the year 1919. We're in Louisville, Kentucky. Deputy Corner Singer was having a quiet Christmas Eve at home when his phone rang. He answered, and it was local doctor Christopher C. Schott. Dr. Schott said he needed Singer to come right away. He had just returned to his office in the late afternoon, and he found his secretary dead on the floor. Dr. Schott believed it was suicide. It wasn't unusual for a doctor to call the coroner, but this was a little odd. Something had happened to his secretary, suicide or not, and the police needed to be able to investigate this as well. So Deputy Coroner Singer made a phone call to the local station and alerted them to the situation on his way out. That way, they could have a detective there as well, and make sure everything was on the up and up. It didn't take long for the coroner to arrive at Dr. Schott's office. He was there within minutes. He walked in, and Dr. Schott showed him the body. He said that he only touched her to see if she was living or not. 
On the floor was a beautiful girl, lost to this world too soon. Her name was Elizabeth Ford Griffith. She was lying on her back on the floor. There was a small blood stain around her left breast. A gun was at her side. One thing that the coroner found particularly odd was that she was dressed only in a short slip and a hospital dress. She had on long stockings and shoes. While he was investigating the body, Dr. Schott again suggested that this was suicide, nothing more. So the coroner checked for signs that she had done this to herself. One missing thing was the telltale signs of powder burns that a gun and a bullet produce when it's fired and hits something at close range. There were no burns on the girl's clothing or the body, which suggested that Elizabeth did not do this to herself. He estimated that she was shot sometime between noon and 3 p.m. When detectives arrived, they examined Elizabeth's body, and then they asked to speak to Dr. Schott to get his statement. He said that he and a 13-year-old girl, Lorene Gardner, who was a local girl he knew, had left the office to deliver some Christmas presents to some of his patients at noon. Elizabeth was in the office cleaning and handling the phone. The office needed cleaning pretty badly, and she would be busy for most of the afternoon. The doctor told the police that while they were out delivering presents, he called his office to see if there were any messages for him. Back then, when you made a phone call, you would talk to an operator first. Then they would connect the call to the correct line. When no one answered, Dr. Schott thought that the line was busy, but the operator told the doctor that it was not a busy signal, but no one answered the phone. It just kept ringing and ringing. Dr. Schott became annoyed with Elizabeth. He said that he thought that she was cleaning and just ignoring the phone. When he returned to the office with little Lorene, he found that a patient was waiting outside his office doors. The door was still locked, and she had waited around to see if anyone would let her in. So Dr. Schott unlocked the door, and he ushered everyone through the door. He said he was still annoyed because the office looked as if it hadn't been cleaned at all. He said he called out for Elizabeth several times. When she didn't answer, he checked for her in all the rooms, and that's when he found her. The police asked Dr. Schott about the gun that was found, and he confirmed that it was his. He kept it at his office for protection. Elizabeth knew about the gun and never said anything about it one way or another. Police asked about Elizabeth. What was going on in her life, who she was seeing, and what he knew about her. The doctor told them that she was engaged to Captain George Jordan of the 7th Field Artillery, 1st Division. They were to be married on Christmas Day, but had recently changed the wedding date. He also told them that he, too, had been engaged to Elizabeth at one point. They had been together when she was younger. At the statement, the detective was kind of taken aback. 
and asked how old Elizabeth was. The doctor said that she was 17, but when they saw each other, she had lied to him about her age. She was only 14 years old at the time. When they had split up, she met the captain, and they soon fell in love. But he admitted that she still had feelings for him, and he too for her. The police took the doctor at his word. So far, there was nothing to charge him with, even though he was quickly becoming their prime suspect. But they now had another name to look into, Captain George Jordan, and they needed to speak to Elizabeth's parents as well. But for good measure, the police took the doctor into the police station while they ran down their leads and decided if they had any further questions for him. Because they didn't know when Elizabeth had been shot, police started canvassing the neighborhood. They wanted to talk to anyone who heard the gunshot. Hopefully, they knew what time it was. The first place detectives went to was Elizabeth's parents' house. They had to inform Mr. and Mrs. John T. Griffith that their daughter was now deceased. Upon receiving this news, they were both in shambles. Mr. and Mrs. Griffith openly sobbed at this news. They spoke about Elizabeth's relationship with Captain George Jordan, how they planned to marry but had put it off for a few days. The detectives asked about her relationship with Dr. Schott, and they told the detectives that they believed that their relationship was over. Still, they were uneasy with her working at her former fiancé's place of business. Dr. Schott was a bit of a playboy, and they didn't know what was going on behind closed doors. The detectives asked if there was any other men in Elizabeth's life, anyone who wanted to do her harm, or wanted to stop her from getting married, and they told the detectives that there was no one. Detectives also spoke to Katie May Griffith, Elizabeth's little sister. She stated that she called the office to talk to her sister right around 2 p.m. When she called, Dr. Schott had answered the phone. She knew it was him by the sound of his voice. This was a direct contradiction to what the doctor had been telling everyone. So this was, this was a pretty big deal. The police then visited Captain George Jordan. They asked him to come into the station, and they told him what had happened. Immediately after being told about Elizabeth's murder, he broke down and began to cry. They had to rule him out as a suspect, so they asked him where he was that afternoon. He gave them the names of his superiors, who he was working with, they and his other squad mates all provided rock-steady alibis. There was no way that the captain had anything to do with the murder. They let him go and promised to catch whoever did this. On December 26, feeling as if they had enough to go forward, the chief of detectives was looking for Dr. Schott. He had been let go in the early hours of Christmas morning. They checked his house and office. Both were empty. 
they received word that the doctor might be at attorney Moxley's office. He was recently hired by the doctor and would be handling all these legal matters for him. When they arrived at Dr. Moxley's office, the detectives and officers went straight in. There were five or six people in the room. Little Laureen Gardner, the 13-year-old girl, was sitting at Dr. Schott's side. The detective stepped forward and announced, Doctor, you're under arrest. Have you a warrant? said Dr. Schott. I don't need a warrant, the detective replied. Dr. Schott wisely complied with the orders and went with the detectives. They also took Laureen with them as well. They had not yet interviewed her, and they needed her statement. Now, they were arresting the doctor for the murder of Elizabeth, but to charge him with the murder and go forward with the trial, they would need to convince a grand jury of his guilt. The detectives separated Lorene from the doctor to interview her. The local paper recorded the interview. The Owensboro Messenger, dated December 27, 1919, had this as front-page news. This is what it said. Lorene Gardner talked freely while waiting in the office. She said she was very fond of Dr. Schott and was at his home for quite a good deal. She said that she and Dr. Schott started from his office at 10 o'clock Wednesday morning and delivered a number of Christmas gifts in the West End. About 1 o'clock they returned and were preparing some more gifts to be delivered. The little girl said, As we were wrapping up presents, Elizabeth said to Dr. Schott, Will you answer one question, seriously, and tell me the truth? Dr. Schott answered, well, it's owing to what it is. Elizabeth said, for whom is that ivory manicure set? Dr. Schott, in a teasing way, said, you don't need to know, do you? Lorraine Gardner said that at that, Elizabeth started to cry. And Dr. Schott said to her, if you want it, you can have it. I'll buy another. Miss Griffith answered, No, I don't want it. At about 1.15, we left on the second trip, continued the child. Elizabeth had stopped crying, came to the folding doors, and started to mop up the floor. We delivered seven packages, and at about 3 o'clock we got back to the doctor's house. The doctor was again with me all the time. He would stay in the machine, which was another word used back then for a car, and I would take the packages into the houses. When we got back to Dr. Schott's office, I was the first one out of the machine. I went to the front door, which was open. Dr. Schott came right behind me. As we went up, Miss Gerlock followed behind us. The folding doors were hooked, and the doctor knocked on them, calling, Elizabeth! There was no answer. He took his knife, slipped it under the door, and unlatched them. The mop and bucket had been turned over in this room, and there was water all over the floor. 
Elizabeth was lying in the third room on her back. The revolver was a foot beside her. The doctor took out something, put it to his ears, and then listened to her heart and lungs. He felt her eye and then went to the middle room and used the telephone. Dr. Schott, who was now in a prison cell, asked that they talk to Miss Janine Brands, who spoke to Elizabeth throughout the day. She knew that Elizabeth was alive when the doctor was away. She had called him and told him what had transpired. So the detectives did just that. They went down to Miss Brand's home and they asked her about her story and hear for themselves what she had to say. The Courier Journal reported the interview in Louisville, Kentucky on December 27, 1919 and was featured on page 3. I received a bill from Dr. Schott which had been settled a year ago. At 9 o'clock Wednesday morning, I called his office to get the matter straightened out. Miss Griffith answered the phone, informing me that the doctor was out delivering Christmas presents and asked me to call in 15 minutes. Determined to reach the physician, I followed her instructions, called up at 15-minute intervals until 4 o'clock. Perhaps it will seem strange, but as the day grew older, the girl's voice seemed to change. In the morning, her mood was cheerful. After dinner, it was sad. I felt something was worrying her. She sounded as though overcome by some great grief. I remember her saying, Have you received your Christmas presents? I told her that I expected no presents and that I was not bothered about anticipating them or getting them. Then I asked if she had received any, and brokenly, as though sobbing, she replied, I, I don't know. Could Christmas presents mean nothing? I, I, I am too sad, too sad to care. It didn't sound like the Miss Griffith I had talked to earlier in the day. Now I believe that she was wounded at the time and I paid little attention to her talk. Being a trifle angry at receiving a bill I had paid, I called again at 2.30 but received no answer. After that, I called until about 4 o'clock when Dr. Schott answered the phone and, in not an excited tone, said, a serious thing had happened. Now, there are only a couple of scenarios that I can come up with that explains what might have happened in this case, given what has been told so far, it is conceivable that Elizabeth has become sad about what was supposed to be her wedding eve. Perhaps she was still in love with the doctor and she was getting cold feet. The sight of the nice manicure set going out to someone as a present made her believe that maybe the doctor was moving on. Perhaps she had thought about it, taken the gun from the doctor's office, and killed herself in a way that no powder burns were produced. It's also possible that the doctor did indeed commit the murder himself. If he did, he might have been using the young Loreen as a naive alibi. 
if she were waiting in the car and the doctor shot Elizabeth on their way out, perhaps she didn't hear or know what was going on. But the doctor also admitted that he was dating Elizabeth when she was 14 years old. Maybe he had seduced Laureen, who seemed quite taken with the doctor in her statement to the police. If so, she might be fully aware of what really happened and was determined to help the doctor no matter what. What really speaks to this is the statement from Miss Brands. She said she'd been calling every 15 minutes since 9am, but if that was the case, why didn't the doctor talk to her when he was in the office? She said that after dinner she called again and it didn't sound like the same Elizabeth she'd been talking to earlier in the day. Perhaps she wasn't talking to Elizabeth at all. Maybe it was Lorraine. On December 27th, the state attorneys pressed forward with the charges of murder against Dr. Schott. They now will have to convince a grand jury of his guilt to formally charge the doctor with the murder. This would be the decision of the decade, and it was only a grand jury hearing. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Elizabeth was engaged to Army Captain George Gordon. She was found dead at work. Her boss and former boyfriend, Christopher G. Schott, was the prime suspect in the case. He told police he was out delivering presents with little Laureen Gardner. When he left Elizabeth, she was alive and well. When they came back, she was dead. The doctor stated that he believed that Elizabeth had taken her own life. The coroner believed otherwise. If Elizabeth had shot herself, she would have to have done it in a very odd sitting position. She would have powder burns on her clothing, showing that the gun was pressed near her, and none of those were present. So the weapon had to have been fired away from the body, making it all too difficult to do when in an odd sitting position. Besides that, there was little evidence that the doctor had committed the crime. At this time, the only person who could break the doctor's alibi and show that he was indeed at the office near the time of the murder is coincidentally the victim's sister, Katie Mae Griffith. She stated that she had called around 2 p.m. and that the doctor answered the phone at that time. But there was something just being revealed to the public. There was another witness to the doctor's whereabouts at the time of the murder. You see, one of the first things that police had done was canvas the neighborhood. They interviewed anyone and everyone who lived within the area. 
police wanted to know if they had heard the gunshot and if they knew what time it was. Police got much more than what they bargained for when they talked to Miss Ellis Rudolph. She told the police that she lived across from the doctor's office, that on Christmas Eve, around 2.30 p.m., she heard a gunshot. She stepped outside to see what had happened, but all she saw was Dr. Shot coming out of his office. He approached Miss Rudolph and asked if she had heard anything, and she told him about the loud bang sound. The doctor told her to check to see if anyone else had heard it, but the doctor was gone when she came back. A second witness came forward as well, Mr. William J. Ryan. He stated that he was walking down the street when he saw Dr. Schott come out of his office right around 2.30 p.m. He said they had a very brief conversation, and then he just went on about his day. He didn't realize until he had heard about the death of Elizabeth and the arrest of the doctor that he might have just seen the doctor just right after the murder. These statements gave the state attorneys enough to arrest the doctor for murder. But Dr. Schott was not the only one in trouble here, because the state's attorneys were so sure that the doctor was not telling the truth about his movements on Christmas Eve that it meant that little Lorraine Gardner, who stated she was with the doctor the entire day, was also not telling the truth. Since the doctor's arrest, the police had let Lorraine go into a detention center. Their reasoning was that her parents let her do as she pleased and were obviously not watching over her. The judge placed a $200 bell on her release and her parents quickly paid it. So detectives knew that she was back at home. So on December 28, 1919, police and detectives entered the Gardner home and then arrested Lorraine as an accomplice to murder. While she was being arrested, her parents were pleading that she not be taken. When that didn't work, they screamed at Lorraine not to cooperate with detectives and not to answer a single question. Other than her statements, the detectives and attorneys had reason to suspect Lorene as knowing more than she was letting on. She had shown little to no emotion of the death of someone she had seen throughout that day. This was, in the eyes of the police, very suspicious. When told of the arrest of Laureen, Dr. Schott was conducting an interview with the Courier-Journal paper. He told the paper several things, but one of them stuck out as very odd. He said, now that they have arrested her, I will tell you something that I've never yet said. After Laureen and I left the standard dairy lunch before the body was found on Wednesday and were getting in the automobile... I said, gee, I wonder if she killed herself. When we arrived in front of my office, I said, Loreen, you can come in the office with me. I had a fear that the girl killed herself, he said. The statement was very odd, 
To be brought up in such a manner only casts more doubt in Dr. Schott's innocence in my eyes. He's trying too hard to prove his own innocence here. If he had told Loreen his suspicions, then there could be someone who would testify that is precisely how he felt at that time. But he didn't. Also, according to Loreen's own statement, she was the first one out of the car. She didn't have to be told to get out and come along. She was already going in. On New Year's Eve, Dr. Schott is let out of jail on an $8,000 bell. He told the papers that several female patients were trying to get appointments with him. Many of them had nothing wrong with them. They just wanted to be around him. He suggested that he found it hard to get on without a secretary and that he was putting out an ad to hire a new one. Amazingly, he found someone willing to replace Elizabeth, 45-year-old Miss Hardung, who had been looking for a job. She reported that the phone in the office had constantly been ringing and that the caller would then either hang up or say, well, they had the wrong number. Lots of curious onlookers, pretty much. Oddly enough, the same night that Dr. Schott is let out of jail, someone went to the address that the paper listed where Mr. William Ryan lived. He's the one who's a witness and said he saw the doctor at his office around the time of the murder. And this unknown person left a letter at the door that threatened the life of William Ryan. This letter was written in red ink and had a photo of William inside with red ink splattered on it like blood. The letter was handed over to the police. The coroner's jury announced their verdict on January 3rd, 1920. They were split on if Elizabeth killed herself or not. They could not really say one way or the other. They knew that she had died of the gunshot, but not by whose hand. The problem they had was that they did a test with Dr. Schott's gun. They shot a piece of cheesecloth with it at various lengths to see how far you would need to hold it out to not get powder burns. This test showed that all you had to do with this gun was hold it out three inches or more, and it would not produce those burns. This was damning to the state's stance on why they believed the doctor was guilty in the first place. Now, a grand jury is different than a jury trial. In a jury trial, the state has to prove that the accused is guilty without a shadow of a doubt. It's the state's job to show that 100% this person is guilty. But in a grand jury case, all the state needs to do is prove that there's enough evidence to charge someone with a crime. They don't have to prove anything. They just need to show that there's enough there for us to think that this person did it. So when the grand jury started seeing this case, they were flooded with witness statements from both sides of the aisle. Several took the stand, including Elizabeth's sister, her parents, those who received presents from Dr. Schott, the person who served him lunch that day. Little Lorraine testified for Dr. Schott as well. 
They all told what they had witnessed and how it all happened that day. While all of this is going on, the state found another charge to place against Dr. Schott, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Dr. Schott and Lorreen Gardner's parents were all brought up on this charge. The state was basically saying that you personally helped this child break the law and did nothing about it. This wasn't a severe charge. It didn't mean that they would spend a lot of time or any real time in jail or prison if convicted. But because this is such a publicized case, it ended up being in almost every paper in the state. It took several days for the jury to decide whether there was enough to charge the doctor with Elizabeth's murder. In the end, they exonerated Dr. Schott of any wrongdoing. It was the decision of the grand jury that there was just not enough evidence to bring the doctor up on murder charges. Elizabeth's mother came out and spoke to the press after the verdict. She talked to the Owensboro Messenger, and this was published on January 14, 1920. There is another and higher court, said Miss John Griffith, mother of the dead girl, when she heard the grand jury's report. And as sure as there is a God in heaven, the guilty will not go unpunished. Anyone who ever knew poor dear Elizabeth knows that she could have never committed suicide. She was bright, sweet, and sunny-natured child. We have received six or seven letters every day since she was killed from people all over the country expressing their sympathy. Because they were not charged, the charges of contributing to a delinquency of a minor were dropped. The state tried every which way to hold and stop the doctor, but it seemed like they failed at every single point. A year after this decision, in an odd turn of events, Dr. Schott had the body of Elizabeth moved to his family plot. He erected a $500 monument to her, which still stands today. I have a link to this at the truecrime.blog page if you want to see it. It'll be posted just as soon as all of the parts of this story are out. Dr. Schott was quoted as saying, I loved Elizabeth, and I feel as if she belonged to me. Kind of creepy. Elizabeth's family oddly went along with this. I can't imagine the doctor could just move a body without their permission. No motive behind that was ever published. I find this very odd and the type of thing you base ghost stories on. <laughs> One of the papers that reported this stated that Dr. Schott vowed to take the open space next to Elizabeth as his own so he would be closer to her. That didn't happen. Now, Dr. Schott was never retried for the death of Elizabeth. He went on about his life, continuing to womanize, putting himself and others in danger, and so on. 
Typically, this is the part where I tell you that the story is complete and we discuss how I feel about it. But would you be surprised to learn that there's a part three to this story? Would you be surprised to hear that another murder happened in Dr. Schott's office just a few years after Elizabeth's murder? And would you be surprised to find out that Dr. Schott was the one that was murdered? Today we have an extraordinary episode. If you remember our last two episodes, we have covered a sad story of Elizabeth Ford Griffith. She died on Christmas Eve in unusual circumstances. She died in Dr. Schott's office, her employer, in 1919. While he was supposedly out delivering presents, Dr. Schott was believed to be the murderer, but the prosecutor failed to convince a grand jury of his guilt and he was allowed to be set free with no charges against him. Personally, I believe that Dr. Schott killed poor Elizabeth. He was jealous of her pending marriage, and perhaps the holiday set him over the edge. He found a young 13-year-old girl who would be his alibi and used her to save his own life. Now, eight years after that grand jury decision... On April 17th, 1928, police are again summoned to Dr. Schott's new sanatorium because another murder has taken place. Around 1.45 p.m. in the afternoon in Louisville, Kentucky, Lieutenant John Guttermuth received a phone call about a reported shooting at the local sanitarium. He was one of the first officers to have arrived on the scene. As he walked inside, he was met by a man named Dan Newman. Dan was a nurse at the sanatorium. He told Lieutenant Guttermuth that he killed Dr. Schott in self-defense, and he was now dead. Dan continued and said that the doctor was verbally assaulting him and the staff and that he reached into his pocket as if he were pulling out a gun. That's when Dan pulled his own gun and shot the doctor before he could shoot him. The officers took Dan into custody and brought him back into the station. From his admission, he could be let go if this was indeed in self-defense like he said, but they needed to hold him just to make sure. He could also be facing murder charges if it came to it. Lieutenant Guttermuth walked into the kitchen where Dr. Schott's body was. The doctor was on the floor. He was actually kind of in the doorway. He was shot three times, once in the heart, once in the shoulder, and once in the liver. It was noted that the doctor smelled of alcohol. It was also noted that the doctor did not have a gun on him. When Nurse Dan pulled the gun and shot the doctor, he shot an unarmed man. Further investigation showed that Dan had fired the gun five times. Two bullets missed and struck the room behind him. Detectives then interviewed the only witness of the shooting, Miss Frances Beckley, 
Miss Beckley stated that the doctor had awoken a patient in the sanitarium and that he was berating her. And then he shouted at Miss Beckley to put her to bed. Then he noticed that a key was not in the door to the kitchen where it was supposed to have been left. He then turned back and started shouting and cussing at Miss Beckley. She is just a cook, by the way, not a nurse. It was her job just to operate the kitchen, not take care of the patients. That's when Dan stepped in and told the doctor that he could not treat his employees that way. The two got into a heated argument, which then ended with Dr. Schott being killed. Dr. Schott had been spiraling out of control for some time now. Ever since he was accused of Elizabeth's murder, he had never really gotten back to normal. Instead of a private practice, Dr. Schott decided to open up a sanatorium. The first one he opened up actually burned down. He made the news when he helped rescue several nurses from the building. He also made the news when he wrecked his car in 1925. The woman that was with him sued him for several thousand dollars because he was driving so recklessly. She refused to say why she was in the car with the doctor, just that he was driving unsafe when they wrecked. In the months that led up to Dr. Schott's death, he had been drinking a lot. One nurse stated that she had been working there for several months and had not seen the doctor sober once. There were rumors that Dr. Schott was having affairs with nurses and clients alike. He treated women as if they were something to possess. A toy, nothing else. Dr. Schott's body was laid to rest on April 19, 1928. He was buried in a lot adjoining the one that contained Elizabeth Griffith. He was not buried right next to her like he once stated that he wanted to be. Meanwhile, Dan Newman was not as lucky with a grand jury as Dr. Schott was. Dan was charged with murder. The detectives were able to show that not only was the doctor unarmed, but it also appeared that he was trying to get away from Dan and had presented him with no danger. The idea that self-defense could be used in this case made really no sense to the state and the prosecutors. A man running away from a gun doesn't really present much of a danger to the shooter. The coroner's jury also came to the same conclusion. Although they do not assign full legal guilt, they concluded that it was Dan who killed the doctor. Now, longtime listeners to the show know what a coroner's jury is. I'll give a brief example here. A coroner's jury is like any other jury, except these individuals are medical doctors. Depending on the state, they examine the body and make a conclusion of how they died. And in some states, they investigate the crime and name who they think was responsible for it. So throughout history, these were used very often. It provided a more fair basis for a trial. So one doctor cannot skew the results for the state or the defense when you have 11 other doctors also looking over your shoulder, making their own decisions. 
Dan Newman's trial began on June 11, 1928, just two months after Dr. Schott's murder. The state explained the circumstances of the crime to the jury, that the doctor was unarmed and presented no threat to anyone. The detectives testified to what Dan's actions were when they first arrived on the scene, how he admitted to killing the doctor, and he handed over the weapon that he brought to work. Through testimony, they were able to let the jury know that the doctor was trying to leave the room when he was shot and killed. But when it came to the defense, they came up with a very unique strategy. They called witnesses that spoke about the doctor's excessive drinking. They talked about the wild parties that he threw and how he treated women horribly on the regular. They interviewed the nurses who were talking about affairs that he had with multiple women and that he was always drinking while at work. They then called Dan Newman to the stand. He told of a story of how several months before the shooting, he was spending time with Dr. Schott while he was heavily drinking. Dr. Schott confided with Dan that he killed not once, but twice, and had gotten away with two murders. He bragged that he could not be taken down by anyone. Dan didn't like where this conversation had gone, and he changed the subject. But the next day, the doctor remembered what had been said, and that now someone knew of his past crimes. Ever since then, Dr. Schott began to treat Dan horribly. He even threatened him several times, and witnesses were called that had heard these open threats. This is why Dan was carrying a gun to work. He was afraid that Dr. Schott would try and kill him, just like he did his last two victims. On the day of the shooting, Dr. Schott was in a rare mood. He was treating everyone horribly. And Dan had had enough when he saw him screaming at the cook. So Dan told Dr. Schott that he could not treat his employees that way. The doctor started yelling at Dan, and then he reached into his pocket as if he were grabbing something. Dan mistaked it for a gun, and so Dan pulled his gun first and shot the doctor. He told the jury that he didn't want to, but he felt like his life was indeed in danger. The case was handed over to the jury. They deliberated for only 31 minutes. When they came back, everyone felt as if they knew what the verdict was. It was never a good sign for the defense when they came back this quickly. The jury found Dan Newman not guilty of murder. It was said that Dan bounced up and down in his chair joyfully when the verdict was read aloud. Afterwards, members of the jury came down and shook Dan's and his counsel's hands. The state prosecutor was furious at this judgment. He asked the judge to throw out the self-defense plea and convict Dan for murder. He also asked the judge to sentence him to 20 years in prison.
But the judge struck that idea down quickly. This case is very odd start to finish. This is one of those cases that could have gone very bad very quickly for Dan. But the jury sided with him and believed in his testimony enough to let him off on self-defense, even though the doctor was unarmed. Now, don't get me wrong. I have minimal sympathy for Dr. Schott. I believe that he murdered Elizabeth and got away with it. I also believe Dan when he says that Dr. Schott admitted to killing two people. It makes me wonder who that second person could be. The only time I could think of him actually maybe getting away with a murder is maybe during the time when he had a fire at the sanatorium before, but I didn't read of any deaths, but I didn't look into it too hard. But um, in many ways, I also think that Dan also got away with murder here. Yes, he was threatened by the doctor, but I don't believe it was enough to really say, hey, I killed him. It was self-defense. He was unarmed trying to get away. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't all kind of fit together for me for some reason. But for personal reasons, I don't hate that Dan was not charged for killing Dr. Schott. Given his past actions, I, I don't hate it. So that's just me, though. But this is all the time I have for today. I hope you all enjoyed this short series. I'm going to work on uh, more Christmas. I'm going to work on some more Christmas themed stories for the podcast and also a few that's going to debut on the website, truecrime.blog. So make sure you go there and check those out. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. I will see you all next time. See ya.